The world is a confusing place, filled with all manner of shimmering distractions that take our conscious mind and our immortal souls and subvert them into the most basal of human emotions. Can any one of us who considers ourselves a spiritual being truly look around the carnival at the barkers, performers, and the caged animals and believe, even momentarily, that any of this is as it should be? My name is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana, distiller, historian, occasional tinker, reenactor, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Perhaps that movement you caught out of the corner of your eye was more than a shadow, that weight on your shoulder more than fatigue. I have lived my whole life like this, aware, awake, and waiting for the next experience, positive or negative, always apprehensive, always analyzing. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. I believe from societal observation that others are becoming acutely aware. I believe that many are being influenced by forces unknown in a negative and spiritually deprived way. I see soft disclosure in every corner of pop culture. Join us as we pull back the curtain, as the veil thins and reach with us into the ether to reclaim the truth. But if you have ghosts, you have everything. Hey guys, here you go. The very last episode of Season 3 of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. So this season's been a lot of fun for me. We've had a lot of great guests. We've had a lot of recurring guests that have been on previous seasons. And I think we've covered a lot of really great ground. I feel like this is the best season so far that we've done. And I'm pretty proud of the fact that we hit our one-year anniversary and we fit basically 50 shows into a single year even with taking breaks. To me, that's fairly impressive. I've put a lot of time and effort into If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, and I've had to learn how to do all this stuff um, from scratch, really, from the recording software to lining up music to mixing, all that stuff. Even with my musical background, the technology was so far beyond what I had when I was playing music that you know, it really kind of threw me for a loop. But I think that the results speak for themselves, and I think that you guys have responded positively to it. I would I would like to see more five-star reviews on Spotify in the future, I hope. And if you like the show, please always give it a, a five-star review. Um, and I'd love to see it shared out some more. I'd like to see our numbers go up a little bit more. Um, I'm not in this to try to make money off of it or anything of that nature or try to monetize it in any way, shape, or form. I'm doing this because it's something that I truly love and I'm truly passionate about, and I love sharing stories with people. Um, and being able to be a part of your day in whatever way that I can with this show and to, <clears throat> excuse me, hopefully uh, fill some, some gaps uh, in, you know, I guess the paranormal uh, realm of podcasts that are also somewhat related to the distilling arts, as it were. So nonetheless, guys, I am still working on the overall bigger story, the bigger picture that I keep talking about over and over again. It's coming. I'm releasing little pieces of it into the episodes as we go. Some of you have picked up on that and you're following it and you understand it. I've got a lot of cool stuff planned for the future. And even though we're taking a break now that, you know, season three is over, there will be some episodes in October. There's no way in hell I'm missing out on Halloween and the Day of the Dead. Uh, For sure, there's some bonus episodes planned, there's a couple full episodes planned, they will be out, they just won't be every single week, 
And then once we hit November, we'll probably lay off of her a little bit, at least up until December, where I've got some Christmas stuff planned again. But um, I'm going to dive a little deeper into some of the Gnostic stuff in the future. I'm going to touch specifically on John the Baptist, as well as um, Simon Magus, uh, a.k.a. Paul. I don't know how many fundamentalists or evangelicals out there will agree with that assessment, but that is my assessment. And I'm going to get back into the Book of Giants, the Book of Jubilees, etc. in the very, very near future. I also have a huge library of material from Dana Olson, uh, who is the world's foremost expert on Prince Matic, not only in the Ohio Valley, but in the United States in general, uh, that we will be getting into in that overall view of fallen angels, Nephilim, giants, Scythians, <laughs> etc. Uh, that stuff is coming. Guys, thank you so much for supporting the show. Um, we are still working on the Oracle deck, by the way. It is coming, I swear. I know I've said that since, you know, <laughs> season one, uh, but it's getting there. It's fully designed. We just got to get it printed and all that stuff. And as always, please support all the things that we do. Uh, whether or not it's this podcast, the Distillers Talk podcast, the One Piece at a Time uh, video series on YouTube if you're interested in distillation, or the One Piece at a Time Sacred and Profane podcast, which might even occasionally have some overlap with this show uh, on Spotify as well. And check out thealchemistcabinet.com. You can order my books there, DVDs, etc. I am working on a third book now and potentially a fourth. Um, I would hesitate to call it a novel. Because it's not going to be a novel, um, but a set of short stories that are tangentially, spiritually related to the art of alchemy and distillation. So, I don't know when either of those two things are going to be out. They'll be out when they're done. That's the way it works. Guys, I love y'all. Please enjoy the episode. It's one that's close to my heart. Distilling the occult and superstition. Tonight on If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. While in this episode we are covering a bit of territory we've touched on in the past, I think much of it is both worth repeating, as well as diving deeper into, so that one might have a real understanding of the roots and true purpose of the art of distillation as well as many of the driving factors behind distilling, remaining to this day, in many ways and in many places, a cultural folk art, despite the growing commodity and industrialized nature of the industry as a whole. To truly understand the art of distillation, one must first come to the realization that its very roots are in the esoteric of the Western mindset, which was also tied to the mystery religions of old and their subsequent inspiration from Eastern-based mystical sects. This should come as no surprise, as one of the many products of the still is of course alcohol, itself a tool of door opening, intoxication, ritual, and ancestral work in many spiritual practices. The word alcohol itself deriving from the Arabic, al-kuhul, or al-kol, with the AL prefix referring as always specifically to quote unquote the cause of and solution to all life's problems. Fitting if I do say so myself. And also therein, within all the gifts of Hermes Trismegistus, a built-in warning not to abuse the tool to satiate the ego. More specifically though, the term refers to a specific type and way of manufacturing eye makeup to be used to dampen the harshness of the sun's rays in the desert. Ironic when one considers that one of the great sins of the fallen angel Azazel from the Book of Enoch and his illicit knowledge was in teaching the art of makeup. 
While the roots of distillation and the alchemical can never be doubted, the modern understanding of alchemy is simply being related to the transmutation of base metals into gold is absolutely foolish and throws us away from the threads that tie the truly mundane nature of the material world to the truly astonishing nature of the spiritual universe. Yes, there was a Maria the Jewess. Yes, she was an alchemist. And yes, some self-proclaimed and public-facing alchemists were professing such material feats as the transmutation of metals, as the focus of their work. But more often than not, this was simply a parlor trick, and a way of misleading a public who may not otherwise understand the real work being done, the great work as it were, the work of Hermes Trismegistus. True without falsehood, certain and most true, what is below is like that which is above, and what is above is like that which is below. To accomplish the miracles of one thing, and as all things were derived from one by the mediation of one, so all things are born from this one thing by adaptation. The sun is its father, the moon is its mother, the wind has carried it in its belly, its nurse is the earth. The father of all talismans of the whole world is here. Its power is whole if it is converted into earth. You will separate the earth from the fire, the subtle from the dense, gentle and with great skill. It ascends from earth to heaven, and then it descends again to earth and receives the power of the superiors and the inferiors. Thus you will have glory of the whole world, and all darkness shall flee from you. This is the strong force of all forces, overcoming every subtle thing and penetrating every solid thing. And thus the world was created. From this, marvelous adaptations will arise, of which the manner is here. Therefore, I am called Hermes Trismegistus, having the three parts of the philosophy of the whole world. What I have said about the operation of the sun is accomplished and ended. And while this emerald tablet wasn't known by outsiders until the early medieval period, its message and the secrets of the cloth of this world and the pleroma of the spiritual was certainly understood and implemented by many initiates in the centuries prior. The great secret still being obscured by its obvious prima facie value to many to this very day. That the divine spark, the quintessence, and the zero-sum energy of God is to be found in all things and reflected upon the face of the curious, even as it diminishes from its source and that this illuminated and non-corporeal energy can be used in the creation of not one, but of all things, sacred and profane, material and immaterial, that it is used daily by anyone with free will and creativity enough to harness it, the quintessence of what makes the whole, the dark matter of it all, the subversion of the illusion of the very nature of this world, these thoughts tracing back to humanity's earliest remembered civilized times, back to the fertile crescent between the two legs of the mother, the two rivers giving rise to the dreamers of the modern era of man, gifts from the gods either given or stolen, Promethean fire passed to wise men, those of old, those of renown, and passed down to the priests, subsequently stolen by the peasants and reclaimed, rightfully so, by those in communion with some deeper, all-knowing, yet unfathomable and unknowable entity, the one above all. The ritual use of stills in this Western world can be found amongst the Dionysian cults, and the worship of the green man, the fertility figure, and the shoulders upon whom Bacchus, Pan, and other woodland fertility gods find themselves situated. The figure himself a newborn representation of Osiris, and his mythology not dissimilar to that of the prophet Jesus, all the way down to the eat of my flesh and drink of my blood motif. Dionysus was seen not only as the god of unbridled passion, fertility, and the path to finding it through wine and his association with the vine, but also as having dominion over death itself. He too was born uniquely, instead of being from a virgin, he was born from his father Zeus's thigh, 
serving particularly as an artificial wound after his mother was murdered by a jealous Hera. In another telling of the story, Dionysus was torn to pieces by the Titans themselves before being put back together and sewed into the thigh of Zeus to be reborn yet again. Dionysus would upon adulthood eventually descend into the underworld to rescue his mother, emerging from the abyss and signaling the beginning of the spring and the return of fertility to the land, as well as symbolizing his own rebirth. He was celebrated with new wine, his emergence from the abyss, seeming as a miraculous birth from the womb of the earth, a type of proto-baptism emerged more ritual cleaning and the rites of the cult prior to partaking in the hedonistic worship of all things fleshy. The wine being seen as his blood, its distillation in a type of crude alembic made of bronze, shaped in the figure of the god with open ends at the hands and heads, and a potential characterized mask. The vapor allowed to escape and lit a fire while paraded during festivities. The spirit itself is not imbibed, but is used in various initiation rites, not limited to the mixing of it with sulfur and the lowering of its proof before being poured upon the heads of initiates and lit on fire, a true baptism by fire, hurting not the initiates, and thus proving just how powerful the God is. More so the ritual bathing, the baptism, and subsequently the emergence of a convert from under the waters upon which flaming alcohol has been thrown, the mastery of the abyss, and the rebirth of the initiate into the rites. The alcoholic vapors understood to be the soul of the god. The boiling pot is Hades, the neck of the still ascending, and the vapor escaping, representing the transmutation of old blood to new, death to life and the ascending into the heavens before the cycle returns to the earth via condensation, or in this case, the burning energy of the bronze effigy. The ritual to the god himself being in many ways a recreation of the divine creation of the cosmos itself. A divine admixture brought to boil under chaos, being transmuted, changed, improved, and by intelligent interference prior to emerging developed and came into the light of day from such chaos. Referring back to those Jesus parallels, we look at the eat me, drink me paradigm. Clearly of Dionysic influence, Hellenistic in all reality, the dying and rising God, the umaphagia, the ritual eating of raw flesh, usually rabbits, although sometimes fawns, done in hopes of unifying oneself with the deity Dionysus as reenacting his death by the tearing apart of his flesh by the Titans and the rebirth subsequently from there. Seen again in the Gospel of John, who really puts an emphasis on chewing the flesh, saying even that if you don't, there is no life in you. The path of salvation is a mystical union. Even the Coptics reference distillation if you know where to look, such as the Bruce Papyrus and the three baptisms of Gnosticism. It happened furthermore after these words that Jesus called his disciples and said to them, Come all of you and receive the three baptisms before I say to you the mystery of the Archons. Now they all came men and women disciples. They all surrounded Jesus at the same time. Now Jesus said unto them, Go to Galilee and find a man, or a woman, in whom most of the evil has died. If it be a man, it is that he has not had intercourse. Or if it be a woman, it is that she has create, ceased to practice the communication of women, and has not had intercourse receive two pitchers of wine from the hands of such a one, and bring them to me, to this place, and bring me vine branches. The disciples, however, brought the two pitchers of wine and the vine branches, but Jesus offered up an offering. He placed the pitcher of wine on the left of the offering, and he placed the other pitcher of wine on the right of the offering. He laid juniper 
upon the offering. He made all the disciples to be clothed in linen garments. He placed anemone plants in their mouths, and he placed the cipher of the seven voices, which is 9,879 in their two hands. And he placed the sunflower plant in their two hands, and he placed his disciples before the offering. But Jesus stood by the side of the offering. He spread cloths of linen on a place, and then he put a cup of wine upon it, and he placed bread loaves according to the number of the disciples. He laid olive branches upon the place of the offering, and he crowned them all with olive branches. And Jesus sealed all his disciples with this seal. Jesus, with his disciples, turned to the four corners of the world. He commanded them that each one of them should place his feet together. He spoke the prayer, saying, Amen, 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 Amen. Hear me, my Father, thou Father of all fatherhoods, thou infinite light who art in the treasury of the light. May the fifteen helpers come, which serve the seven virgins of the light, which are over the baptism of life, whose unutterable names are these. May they come and baptize my disciples in the water of life, of the seven virgins of the light, and forgive their sins, and purify their iniquities, and number them among the inheritance of the kingdom of light. If now thou hast heard me, and hast had mercy on my disciples, and if they are reckoned in the inheritance of the kingdom of the light, and if thou hast forgiven their sins and hast erased their iniquities, may a sign happen, and may Zorokortha come and bring forth the water of the baptism of life in one of these pitchers of wine. And at that moment the sign of which Jesus had spoken happened, and the wine which was on the right of the offering became water. And the disciples came to Jesus, and he baptized them, and he gave them from the offering, and he sealed them with this seal. And the disciples rejoiced with very great joy, because their sins were forgiven, and their iniquities were covered over, and they were numbered among the inheritance of the kingdom of the light. And because they were baptized with the water of life, of the seven virgins of the light, and they had received the holy seal. I myself as a highly superstitious distiller and certainly with my ideals about spirituality do not think that synchronicities are happenstance and I can think of two synchronicities in my recent career regarding distillation that I do not believe to be happenstance now you'll know of both of these things if you follow my career in the distilling industry because you've seen them on the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute or heard me talk about them or read me read me speak about them in the, I guess that's the way you'd say that, in the two books that I've published. But back in Easter time of this year, back in the spring of this year, I always try to do some sort of ritual distillation as it were. And I got very, very interested in the mescaleros in Mexico making agave spirits, making mezcal, but specifically in the pachuga tradition, which actually originates in the tequila region, whereupon pachuga is made as a celebratory spirit of agave distillation infused with whatever various botanicals, fruits, vegetables, etc. are available at that time. I decided that I would do this distillation on the Sunday prior to Easter, so technically Passover. And I decided to lean full pagan <laughs> slash Gnostic into this experiment. And as such, I cannot tell you the exact quantity or the exact number or even the exact ingredients that I used in that pachuga. I didn't write them down. I went with my heart. I went with my inspiration. It, again, is a spiritual thing. It's a ritual distillation for me. But to that distillation, I thought, well, I'll Hoosier this all the way up and I will add raw rabbit into the gin basket and sort of infuse the spirits with the power of said rabbit. 
This is sort of the same thing the mescalaros do, typically with turkeys or chickens, although sometimes reptiles are involved, such as iguanas and or snakes. I did not know until today researching Dionysus and working on this episode, which, by the way, is a precursor to my third book, of the connection between Dionysus and the rabbit, the eating, the tearing apart, the ritual tearing apart of raw rabbit, the chewing of the flesh, the ingestation of the blood, the connection then, of course, to the rising and dying God motif, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which I find interesting. And although I was familiar with the fact that the Bruce Papyrus existed and that there were potential parallels to Jesus making a a spirit in metaphor form with the first baptism, the the baptism uh, by the water of life, I had never actually read the words. And although the baptism by fire and the baptism of the Holy Spirit also have some distilling parallels, including the use of mugwort, ironically, wormwood, a type of wormwood, I found it interesting that the folks being baptized were made to hold a sunflower in each hand. And one of my signature spirits, not one that I've released yet to the general public, but one of my signature spirits uses sunflowers. In fact, many of my signature spirits use sunflower seeds. The symbolism and the meaningfulness of those sort of things is not lost on me fact it is not even surprising to me it's just yet more in my path of self-discovery i recently said on an episode of the one piece at a time distilling institute sacred and profane podcast that i am an alchemist and no doubt my own mysteries are being revealed to me by a power much higher than i am so tonight we're going to touch on some distilling superstitions Not all of them are going to be as deeply seated as what we just went through in terms of the antiquity of distillation. Although I will touch on some of my theories about how distilling got into the West via not only the Arabians and the Islamic mystics, but also from the Knights Templar, subsequently the Cathars and the Rosicrucians. But we'll also touch on some more on-the-nose superstitions. Most distilling superstitions are related to the quality of the spirit being produced. In other words, they make the distiller slow down and pay attention to what they are doing. Something the distilled spirits industry could certainly, certainly benefit from to this very day. Intention in any type of magic is of utmost importance, and distillation is magic Make no mistake about that. I have no doubt in it. I have had too many experiences of synchronicity and flat-out paranormal events related to the world of distillation and history to believe or to know. I don't even believe I know. I know otherwise. I hope you guys enjoy. This one's a special episode for me, if you can't tell. It's been a while since I've been as inspired as what I currently am with this particular subject. Hold tight. So partway through conceptualizing this episode of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, and in writing out this episode, and realizing that a lot of what I was pulling into this episode is based on some of the work for the third book for the um, Alchemist Cabinet that I've been working on for some time. And 
realizing then as well that I've touched on distilling superstition quite a bit in the past, and I may still touch on that some in this episode, but I think the episode is going to take a pretty solid turn now, more into the occult and esoteric of distillation. So let's dive into it. Understanding distillation as an occult art requires a prima facie understanding of alchemy itself as a spiritual pursuit. A pursuit with roots dating back to the primary conscious realizing moment of our own species and the very nature of our reality. Animism, or the view that every single natural material thing, animal, mineral, or vegetable, is imbued with sacred spark, divine meaning, and ultimately a quintessence or base vitality and power. An understanding that this third dimensional existence extends above and below our normal threshold of perception and can be revealed to us through personal spiritual work, scientific principles, metaphor, humor, and even the ingestion of entheogenic substances. There are multiple keys to unlock the kingdom and many floors in the great treasury. The seven stages of alchemy. The first stage of alchemy is calcination, the fire stage. To create, one must first destroy. Fire is the great purifier, the blackened ash representing chaos and the unconscious self, the primitive base, the dark matter that the universe itself emerged from at the first emanation of the demiurge. The materia prima, if you will, the essence of this world. The burning of this materia prima until reduced to ash represents ego death, with the goal of solidifying our identity to develop a higher level of consciousness and refinement of spirits. We must burn to pure ash, white ash, that which does not serve our purpose. Burn away the calcius and callous cocoon we build around ourselves. Once these ties to identity are destroyed, we are left with what we really are. And that isn't necessarily a comforting proposition. Step two, dissolution. The water stage. The dissolution of the ashes and water, alcohol, sometimes the alcohol itself imbued with beneficial properties, a fortification of sorts, and later repetitive stages. Think of this as a symbolic baptism in reverse. This is the stage of separating completely from our inauthentic components, absolute and irreversible ego death. Think of the Jungian concepts at this stage. The dissolution stage allows the release of trauma and represents catharsis a way to remove the shadows that follow your footsteps. Stage 3. Separation Whereupon the pure quintessence is separated from the impure. This is the air element stage, a liberation from all negative emotions, or in the distiller's terms, the phlegms of this earthly existence. This stage is representative of gnosis of oneself, understanding one's hang-ups without becoming attached to them and pulling yourself back down. Stage four, conjunction or compounding. After the putrefaction by fire, water, and air, and the subsequent separation, the individual, broken down components, are brought back together into a new form to see what of value remains and can be brought together to form something greater than the individual aspects. This is the formation of a greater self. 5. Fermentation The rebirth of the true self The rising of the phoenix from the ashes The emergence from the baptism This stage often gives way to difficult feelings via a loss of identity but represents a metamorphosis into the true I am, a chrysalis, if you will. Six, distillation, the actualization of spirit, the I am statements. In Jungian language, 
This is the assimilation of any lingering shadow aspects into the perfected self. The harmony of as above, so below. The merging of both the conscious and the unconscious. The strengthening and fortification of all in which one truly believes, understands, or idealizes. This is followed by the seventh step, coagulation, the healing from the wound and the solidifying of all internal principles of the greater spirits. Sometimes this stage involves the catalyst of some other principle we hope to better understand or incorporate into our world, and which must again time over time cause us to work through the same seven steps until perfection. The great work is not after all an end goal, as the Philosopher's Stone is never truly perfected until it reaches such a state that it can effect a positive change in other prima facie material without the seven steps. This being the goal of the true alchemist, purity of understanding, the virtue of the impure material, and how best to separate the gross from the sublime. Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross In a dark night with anxious love and flames O happy lot, forth unobserved I went My house being now at rest In darkness and in safety By the secret ladder disguised O happy lot, in darkness and concealment My house being now at rest in that happy night, in secret, seen of none, seeing not myself, without other light or guide, save that which in my heart was burning, the light guided me, more surely than the noonday sun, to the place where he was waiting for me, whom I knew well, and where none appeared. O oh, guiding night, O oh, night more lovely than the dawn, O night that hast united the lover with his beloved and changed her into her love. On my flowery bosom, kept whole for him alone, there he reposed and slept, and I cherished him and the waving of the cedars fanned him, and his hair floated in the breeze, that from the turret blew, he struck me on the neck with his gentle hand and all sensation left me. I continued in oblivion lost. My head was resting on my love, lost to all things in myself, and amid the lilies forgotten, threw all my cares away.
The art of distillation has always been tied to spirituality. In 1330, Pope John XXII had an Alembic made to produce water of life, and a true corporation of distillers was organized, the Aqua Ardentarius, in Provence, Italy, as early as 1444. There were simple waters of life, made of wine alone, and distilled and filtered repeatedly to reach the perfection of purity, as well as the water of life composite, or what we would now think of as botanical spirits, into which various herbs, flowers, and botanicals were added according to the needs of the final consumer. In Tuscany in the 14th century, an anonymous writer wrote in the treatise Operativa Medica, its goodness lies not only in the body, but in the soul. It causes us to forget our sadness and anxiety, makes us merry and refreshes the intellect when we dedicate ourselves to the study of difficult and subtle matters, gives courage and helps lessen the effects of pain and fatigue, and has many more properties of this type. The Franciscan friar Giovanni di Rupasissa, born in 1310 and died between 1366 and 1370, studied philosophy for five years at Toulouse before entering the Franciscan monastery at Arilla to study five further years. He was an alchemist and a prophet. His studies led to his belief in the soon-to-come Antichrist and that distillation could be a powerful tool in the fight against Satan. Having a complex understanding of cosmology, astrology, and lunar cycles, he believed heaven to be incorruptible because of its position beyond the influence of the moon and the humors which govern the human body. Fearing coming plagues and pestilence, he set to work to create great elixirs, philosopher's stones, and strengthened waters, not to give immortality, but to potentially prolong life. Eventually, terming the result, the experiments, Aquavitae, or Quinta Essentia. In time, his denunciation of ecclesiastical abuses and his prophecies caused his imprisonment in the Franciscan convents, but his work in distillation was seen as so spiritually important it was allowed to be continued in prison and even taught to others. He was eventually able to appeal to Pope Clement VI in 1349. John was a spiritual Franciscan with a vow of poverty and who believed that the order had moved away from its divine directive. He was viewed by his superiors, similar to the Cathars, as a type of heretic. For him, the fact that brandy did not diminish in quality over time and that various things soaked in it were preserved was evidence of its medicinal role in the possible preservation of the human body when taken internally. Understanding that alcoholic spirits also extracted the healing virtues of various herbs far more effectively than water single-handedly helped greater Europe more than any other medical spiritual advancement up to that time as the Black Plague made its appearance in 1348, early gins becoming then fortification against the disease due to the antimicrobial and antiviral properties of the juniper berry. Repasissa wrote in his book, In Consideration of Quinta Essentia in 1350, a little good aqua ardente must be taken every morning, as much as may be contained in an eggshell, and as much as may be contained in a walnut or hazelnut shell four to six times a day if desired. In this way, corrupt air cannot harm.
I have talked previously on the show of my admiration for the tequila and mezcal distillers of Mexico, particularly in regards to their sacred distillation of Pachuga. But were you aware there's also a feminine deity that oversees the fermentation of agave? Mayahuel, most commonly associated with the Aztec cultures. She is the personification of the magai plant and part of a complex of interrelated maternal and fertility goddesses. Both the Codex Borgia and the Codex Bourbonilis show her perched atop the magai plant. In the Bourbonilis Codex, she is shown holding a rope made of agave fiber, as it is not only the milk of the plant that is revered, but in fact, all parts of the plants, including the thorns, which were used for ritual bloodletting. Polke, or the fermented sap of the agave, was used ritually and ceremonially. While drunkenness was looking down upon, this spiritual awakening was certainly one to be celebrated. Mayuel was one of several Aztec gods and goddesses of fertility, each of whom had specific roles. She was the goddess of Magay and patron of the 13-day festival, Tresina, in the Aztec calendar that starts with one, Malanali, a time of excess and a lack of moderation. Mayuel was known as the woman of 400 breasts, probably a reference to the many sprouts and leaves of magai and the milky juice produced by the plant and transformed into pulque. The goddess is often depicted with full breasts or breastfeeding or with many breasts to feed her many children. The Sentzon, Totachin, or the 400 rabbits who were the gods associated with the effects of excessive drinking. In the existing Aztec codices, Mayuel is depicted as a young woman with multiple breasts emerging from a magai plant, holding cups with foaming pulque. In the Codex Verbonicus, she wears blue clothing, the color of fertility, and a headdress of spindles and unspun magai fiber. The spindles symbolize the transformation or revitalization of disorder into order. The Bilmec pulque vessel is a piece of carved dark green phylite completely covered in complex iconographic signs and in the collections of the Welt Museum in Vienna, Austria. Made in the early 1500s, the jar has a large head projecting out from the side of the vase that has been interpreted as the day sign, the first day of Mayuel's festival. On the reverse side, Mayuel is illustrated as decapitated with two streams of Aquamael squirting out from her breasts and into a pulque pot below. According to the Aztec myth, the god Quetzalcoatl decided to provide humans with a special drink to celebrate and feast and gave them pulque. He sent Mayuel, goddess of Magai, to the earth and then coupled with her to avoid the rage of her grandmother and her other ferocious relatives, the goddesses Tsitsimimi, Quetzalcoatl, and Mayuel transformed themselves into a tree, but they were found out, and Mayuel was killed. Quetzalcoatl collected the bones of the goddess and buried them, and in that place grew the first plant of Maguey. For this reason, it was thought that the sweet sap, the Aguamayel collected from the plant, was the blood of the goddess. A different version of the myth tells that Mayuel was a mortal woman who discovered how to collect Aquamayel and her husband, Pantacult, discovered how to make poke. Earlier in the show, you heard me mention, as well as in a previous episode, my experimentation with putting my own spin on a sort of pachuga using rabbit. I also mentioned the Dionysian connection with the rabbit and ripping the rabbit apart, etc. But ironically, there's another connection because... I based my pachuga in a lot of the botanical distillations very similar to my absinthe and obviously pulled this off with a number of, uh, I guess you'd say, esoteric symbologies. But one thing I didn't mention earlier that I also find interesting is that 
you know, I used the agave for this pachuga and put some absinthe sort of uh, spin on it and added the rabbit, etc. right? We're getting super, super geeky and, and esoteric with this distillation. But the name agave itself is from Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, agave was described as the daughter of Cadmus and Harmonia and sister of Autono, Eno, Semil, and Polydorus. Agave married Echion, one of the five Spartoi, and was the mother of Pentheus, a king of Thebes. She also had a daughter, Epirus. The Spartoi were a mythical people who sprang up from the dragon's teeth sown by Cadmus and were believed to be the ancestors of the Thebian nobility. Now, in future episodes, we're going to come back to this dragon symbology, and this really plays very heavily into uh, some of the things I've talked about with giants and Prince Matic and etc. But that's for another episode, but it's ironic that that's part of the story. Anyways, Agave was a follower of Dionysus. Cadmus, the king of Thebes, abdicated due to his old age in favor of his grandson, Pentheus. One of the first things the new king did was to ban the worship of the troublesome god Dionysus who he'd heard so much about. Dionysus, who was also Pentheus' cousin, lured Pentheus into the woods. Pentheus wanted to see what he thought were the sexual activities of women, where the Maenads, or followers of Dionysus, then proceeded to tear him apart, and his corpse was mutilated by his own mother Agave thinking that she and the other women had just killed a lion. Dionysus had driven them mad. Agave carried her own son's head on a stick back to Thebes, only realizing the truth when confronted by her father, Cadmus. This murder also served as Dionysus' vengeance on Agave and her sisters, Eno and Adono. Semil during her pregnancy with Dionysus, was destroyed by the sight of the splendor of Zeus. Her sister spread the report that she had only endeavored to conceal unmarried sex with a mortal man by pretending that Zeus was the father of her child and said that her destruction was a just punishment for her falsehood. As you can see, the punishment fit the deed. Agave was exiled from Thebes and fled to Illyria to marry King Lycotherses, and then killed him in order to gain the city for her father, Cadmus.